This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So oil definitely in the spotlight this week. You heard Charlie just talk about uh, WTI crude. It's up about 1.3% as we speak, 65.91 a barrel. This as OPEC is discussing a relatively modest production increase before its meeting in Vienna this week. A lot going on. Let's dig into the oil patch for a moment. Tamar Esner is lead energy analyst over at NASDAQ on the phone in New York. Also with us, our own Fernande Valley oil and gas analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Fernando, let me start with you. So talk to us a little bit about the OPEC. OPEC meeting, what's at stake, and what are the expectations here? Because already oil's up a little bit. Yeah, Kara, I think uh, the original expectation was around a 300,000 barrel increase. And that that seems to be pricing up. There were reports today of it reaching 800,000 barrels a day. Uh, there are two conflicts, uh, conflicting parties. Uh, the Saudis and the Russians are keen to increase their production quotas as opposed to some of the, the Venezuelans and the Iranians that are against raising the production quota so prices can go higher. Um, and a lot of it has to Doesn't do with- everybody benefit when they just kind of keep the, quotes, the, the, the production quotas tighter? Or not necessarily? Not necessarily, because okay. once you get over a certain uh, price level, you start to run into demand destruction as well. And so the Saudis are uh, try- trying to keep it in within a range so that you can both have volume and price uh, benefiting those producers. But the, the guys that are really struggling to make their fiscal goals, your Venezuelas, your Irans, your Angolas, they are really keen to, to be able to get, get production higher. They will struggle, however, with uh, the overall capex needed to get their productions back on track. All right. Let me bring in Tamar. Tamar, come on in on what we're hearing, uh, our expectations of OPEC. Again, uh, the discussions seem to be at this point a smaller than expected output increase, which explains the move up in crude. How do you see it? Yeah, we think there's actually a wide range of expected outcomes, and unlike past deals, there's a lot less certainty going into this one. So, um, you know, the expected range has been in the low end, 300 to 500,000, but then there have been reports of Russia uh, looking for one one million or, or higher than that. Um, and then there's also the overlooked possibility that there is no agreement at all, and Saudi and Russia just increase unilaterally, or the wording in the communique is left uh, open-ended, subject to Venezuela and Iran's future trajectory. So I think what we see going on today is the fact that oil prices had come down about 10% or $7 since late May. And when you look at the financial positioning, you saw that a lot of the longs were liquidating, suggesting profit-taking, but we did not see an increase in short bets, suggesting that there wasn't a lot of a uh, real conviction behind that bearishness. People were just taking profits on the fact that oil prices had come up about 50% off of their bottom. Yeah, down about 9% since uh, May 21st. Fernando, um, does OPEC have the power that it used to have? Uh, no, certainly not. As I, I said earlier and tomorrow as well, there's conflict between the two two parties, and it seems like Russia and Saudi are a lot closer than uh, some of the other member parties in in OPEC. What's really happened? Has it just been there's been so much supply? What's what's really broken it all down? Well, this 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 certainly has been a supply shock. You know, mm-hmm. U.S. shale has been uh, a revolutionary in, in increasing the the capacity in the market. Uh, but also, I think 
as you've seen in the, in the recent years, when oil goes above 80 and even more so above 100, it destroys, destroys demand. You see demand destruction happen. Exactly. And, and so- particularly in OECD where we're already uh, – the marginal barrel of demand is are we going to drive a little bit more or not? And- um, Tamar, what do you see as the power of OPEC going throw- forward? Well, the, the power of OPEC has been uh, diminished, and also you look at um, various other members like Russia, which have become part of uh, the recent deal, not traditionally a member of OPEC, but they have depegged their currency from the U.S. dollar. So they benefit okay when um, oil prices are down because they're able to increase production and maximize revenues. So um, the perspective of market share has gotten a lot more salient, and that has led to more production. And so OPEC has been um, less effective in uh, managing the market from that perspective. And then um, also, as, as mentioned before, shale yeah. um, being able to get production changer. to market a lot faster and bringing down the, the cost of supply, but still not able to um, increase production with a flip of a switch the way that Saudi Arabia can. So the market sometimes tends to look at shale as a, as a swing producer that can balance the market in cases of supply shock. And that's, that's really a, an overestimation of what shale can and cannot do. I mean, Tamar, how much spare capacity is there for OPEC at this point? Well, that's an interesting question because if OPEC increases output right now, um, about a million or even a little bit higher than that, they have the risk of uh, taking down their spare production capacity to the lowest level since 2004. So that would basically be um, at around a million barrels a day. So when you think about all the geopolitical risk in the market right now, that temporarily people haven't been paying attention to, but when you think about what could happen with Iran if they were to pull out of JCPOA or pull out of the NPT, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and if things should um, escalate in the Middle East between Saudi Arabia and Iran or Israel, then you really do potentially have a supply shock scenario. And if OPEC's production capacity is only a million barrels a day, um, that leaves the market really vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. Um, Fernando, just got about 45 seconds left here. So oil prices are up about 40% in the last 12 months, if we take it back to June of last year. What are you hearing about where prices go from here? Just get about 30 seconds. Well, there, there's certainly a concern that what happens in the 2020 scenario because there was such underinvestment from right. the, the oil price shock in, in late 2014 through 2016. And as, as Damar said, can shale grow enough to, to cover that? I think if we go out now and, and take up all this spare capacity, then there are concerns about what happens in 2020. All right. So stay tuned. So no, no, no idea on prices. If if that happens, then higher. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Fernando Valley, Fernando Valley, excuse me, oil and gas analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of researchers in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, along with Tamar Esner, lead energy analyst over at the Nasdaq, on the phone in New York. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg Radio. I got my So anyone who does yoga, like me, full transparency here, probably knows about the importance of meditation and mindfulness. It's also something that John Hancock Insurance is acknowledging the benefits of. Let's find out more from Brooks Tingle, President and Chief Executive Officer at Boston-based John Hancock Insurance in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York on this Monday. Happy Monday. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me here. (laughs) A little meditation on Monday always helps me get through. I don't know about you. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Tell me about a little bit what you guys are up to. Sure. Well, a couple years ago, John Hancock uh, sort of realized something basic, which is we should care an awful lot about how our customers live. 
and have them living a long, healthy life. Right. As a life insurance company, at the end of the day, it's kind of what we do, right? So we found it curious that for hundreds of years, life insurance companies issued policies on people and kind of sat back and said, gee, hope they live a long, healthy life, but really did nothing to help achieve that outcome. So we started engaging our customers through this John Hancock Vitality Program and gave them various incentives and rewards to take steps, oftentimes small steps, to live a longer, healthier life. We started with physical activity. You earn points for taking a certain number of steps or going to the gym. Uh, We then added points for uh, going to see your doctor, as you should. Um, And then we introduced a healthy food program uh, where we give people discounts, 25% off healthy food purchases at over 14,000 grocery stores. You can earn points for buying healthy foods. But it occurred to us recently that we were missing sort of a big part of the equation when it relates to living a long, happy, healthy life. Right. And that's one's mind. Right, right. Keeping it healthy. Exactly. So what are you doing? So, um, gosh, you know, mental health um, is a is a big, broad, complicated category. Yeah. So what People I don't would, fit into slots easily. Exactly. And it's not one sort of, you know, physical activity, you know, yeah. it's kind of easy to know what to do, right? Right. Get out and take a walk, hit the gym, what have you. Uh, eating well, not not all of us, including myself, always do it, but you kind of know what the right choices are. Um, gosh, with mental health, there's a there's a broad spectrum there. And what, what I'd say we're doing is starting. And where we're starting is around stress management, and that's where we bring meditation to bear. And then we're also starting with sleep. Uh, sleep it sounds is a so big, basic, but like, it's so important. No, and, and I can say <laughs> firsthand, you yeah. know, getting a good night's sleep isn't easy. You know, something like 45% of Americans get less than six hours of sleep a night. Right. And you can draw pretty much a straight line between both stress, uh, which is why we're bringing meditation to bear, and a lack of sleep and many chronic and even acute health conditions that affect the body, not just the mind. What's You mentioned points, first Mm -hmm. of all, and I'm just curious. So what do people do with those points when they accrue them? Great question. I should take a step back. So um, with our life insurance policies that have this vitality benefit, when you take steps, anything you might do to live a – that helps you live a longer, healthier life, you get points for those. And those points accumulate. Some people have kind of described it as like a a frequent flyer program for life insurance. Not sure that's perfect, but your points accumulate and you earn a status, silver, gold, platinum. Mm Mm-hmm. And that status correlates to a number of important things. First and foremost, you can get a discount on your life insurance premium of up to 15% as your status increases. Your status level also determines the the magnitude of various other discounts, whether it's on cruises or hotel stays or, or healthy foods and huh. things like that. So you're, you're really encouraged to take these steps, accumulate points, and, and earn the rewards for it. What's the impact of all of this? You guys have been doing this for, is it three years? Three years now, yes. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's great. We can see it's so gratifying because, you know, this is a pure, like... I mean, I think it's yeah. a good thing to do, but I'm just curious. You're running a business, right? Yeah, so I'm, yeah. yeah so, so two things. First and foremost, this is about helping our customers live long longer, healthier lives, which it's sort of a pure shared value proposition. I, I make no uh, bones about the fact that our customers living a longer life is good for us mm-hmm. financially. We pay the death claim later. Right. But, you know, unlike every other life insurance company who has the same motivation, we, they want their customers to lo- live a long life. The, we take a big part of that expected value from our customers living a longer life and put it back into the customer's hands. In the, form, in the form of these incentives and rewards and premium discounts. So, so economically and socially, it's about our customers living a long life. The other thing it's about, though, is totally changing the way people engage with their life insurance company. I mean, life insurance isn't exactly a fun topic, right? No. And for hundreds of years, life insurers would issue a policy, 
And the client, the customer, would take it, tuck it away somewhere. Right. And really never think about it, right? right? I don't know how much you think about your life insurance, but it's not a it's not a very fun thought when you think about it. Right. Maybe Here, honey, when I die, this is what you get. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> it's maybe you have peace of mind. I don't, I don't mean to minimize. You have peace of mind that if no, something no, no. happens. Right. But, but it's not the most pleasant thought because right. for that benefit to be realized, you're gone. Right. Um, and the, from a communication perspective, you know, I, I own a bunch of old life insurance policies as well as modern ones. And, and those old ones, the one thing I get in the mail every year is a privacy notice. You know, it's a big day in the household when that privacy notice shows up. Trust me. Um, but, but not an engaging, rewarding ownership experience. Now we've gone from really relating to our customers once a year in a sort of boring administrative way in our vitality program we're interacting with customers 40 sometimes a month now wow As, so okay so this is what i was when i was reading in about this i thought okay this is kind of cool right you have a, a much deeper relationship mm-hmm. with your clients customers um you also then are accruing a lot of information yes. and gathering a lot of information and i think when anyone thinks about that sharing it with an insurance company thinks okay now do i become a target where they say i don't want this individual like what mm-hmm. do you do to the person who says i'm going to keep smoking i'm not going to exercise and i'm going to eat garbage yeah well, do you that- just charge them a lot well, that's that's a great point, and um, you know when we brought this program, or do to, you say, "I see the data, I don't want to insure you," and like you know, you get that pushback. Yeah, no, we we committed at the outset to have this program being about being positive, encouraging people, incentivizing people, and rewarding people. Yeah, not about punishing people. So once your price is set for your policy, we underwrite you, and we say you're a preferred risk. No matter what you do thereafter, is going to change that fact. But participation in the program, taking steps to will be a benefit, can reduce your premium and earn you these other rewards. So um, we're not going to take your coverage away. Uh, we take the matter of receiving this data from our customers very seriously. It's a fair and, question. I'm just thinking yeah, about the yeah. amount of data that's being floating around, and we're yes. finding, you know, uh, we thought people were being or companies were being responsible with it, mm-hmm. and then we're finding it's not necessarily the case. The key for us, and we we have really not had any pushback on this, is yeah. First of all, make it voluntary. Customers can participate or not participate. If they choose to participate, we make it clear they decide what data they want to share with us. If they decide less to share less, perhaps they don't access some of the rewards and benefits, but they share what they choose to share. Yeah. And the third thing we're very clear about is what you get in return. If you do share this with us, here's what you can get in return. Brooks, I'm curious. You guys have been doing this for three years. I'm talking with Brooks Tingle, president and CEO at John Hancock Insurance. One last question. I'm just curious how many of your customers, clients existing, have decided to participate? Well, this is uh, we're, we're actively trying to determine a way to bring this to our existing customer base. We have right. a couple million existing customers, and we're I'm, I'm bothered every morning that we haven't figured out a way to do it yet. We're working on it. Starting three years ago, this was available to new customers. Okay. And uh, the response has been tremendous. What percentage I mean, of new customers say, yep, I'm in? Uh, I'm not sure we share that, but it's a growing a growing percentage, a significant number. And yeah. we've done consumer research, and like close to nine out of ten consumers say they would prefer life insurance that works this way yeah. to traditional life insurance. So the response has been tremendous and, and growing. De- definitely seems like a much more modern approach. It is. All right. Good to get w- check with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, really interesting. Brooks Tingle, as I mentioned, President and Chief Executive Officer, John Hancock Insurance, of course, based in Boston, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Monday. We can work it out. We can work it out.
Yes, working it out. As part of our Business of Equality initiative here at Bloomberg, we do want to welcome our next guest who's working things out for a certain group of uh, workers over at Amazon. Jelani Hussein is Executive Director of Minnesota Council on American Islamic Relations Care, working with Amazon to accommodate their Muslim employees, which make up about 40% of their workforce. Jelani joining us on the phone from Minneapolis. Hey, nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. Tell us a little bit more about exactly what you are doing and, and the work that you've done with uh, Amazon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, Amazon, much similar to other companies here in Minnesota, we've worked extensively to educate uh, employers on particularly you know, the Muslim population who in Minnesota work for a lot of these uh, manufacturing and also uh, similar outlets like Amazon and, and, and may, mainly around education and also making sure that they are accommodating the needs, uh, particularly religious accommodations for these employees. So at Amazon, uh, it's a fairly newer uh, company here in Minnesota, has, as you mentioned, 40 percent of its employees who are Muslim. Um, and so we've been working around, particularly in the, the month of Ramadan, which just ended this weekend. Uh, Muslims don't eat uh, from sunup to sunset. And many of the employees were, uh, you know, their work productivity went down because they're not eating or drinking on their shift. And this is something that Amazon said that they would work with us. And at this moment right now, we've heard for at least one person, a uh, mother uh, of five children uh, who's worked for the company for 14, 14 months, uh, has been let go because her uh, rate or um, production numbers went below. Uh, and so this was a promise that we were hoping to get from, from Amazon, and uh, we're working with them to make sure that they're uh, accommodating these employees who they rely heavily to produce uh, the products that they do. I mean, a big part of it is, right, understanding as we move towards hopefully greater diversity, greater understanding mm-hmm men, women, people, individuals from, you know, different backgrounds or different sexual orientation, just kind of understanding what's needed. And that's true for, you know, folks of the Muslim population. When you Mm -hmm. go into like a company like Amazon, um, Jelani, I'm just curious, Mm -hmm. is there, you kind of have to start with step one, right? Of just kind of understanding what what a certain group is about. And and so tell us a little bit about that experience, you know, in terms of... So, I mean, this is is something we do and and we have trained uh, almost all of the Fortune 500 companies in Minnesota and many companies around uh, a presentation that we give, which is working more effectively with their with their colleagues and their clients. Uh, and in, in these educations, we also share best management practices, which is mainly really listen to your uh, new employees and work out a plan that works best for them and for your bottom line and to avoid litigation and misunderstandings and, and walkouts, among other things. And so uh, you know, in most cases, companies are willing to do that, and they need the education. They need to be able to also be, uh, you know, open to their employees and, 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 and particularly work with them to make sure that, that there are no issues and, and, and no violations of their religious rights. So education is a big part, uh, but you also have to have a willing partner. Uh, we see Amazon now working toward that. Uh, but the best managed practice we've seen across the state here in Minnesota is a company's willing to step forward and to do that, whether they have 40% of their employees who are Muslim or less than even 1%. We've had companies who, after our presentation, uh, who wants more diverse staff and particularly wants more of these employees who work at Amazon and other places, uh, have, have gone above and beyond to make sure that these employees are accommodated for. Um, and again, uh, this is something that we see to be a, a win-win situation for the employees as well as the employer. Right. Uh, and that's why we're really looking forward uh, for Amazon now, who's, who has almost a couple of thousand Muslim employees, 
to be able to really do the right thing. How important, too, is it for employees to maybe go forward to their employer and say, mm-hmm. hey, you may not be aware of this, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I would hope that mm-hmm. any company where mm-hmm. they have such a large mm-hmm. population, like in Amazon's case, right. that they are, you know, sensitive to it because, of, you know, because of just the sheer size. But right. I, I also right. want you to talk a little bit about the employee being an advocate for themselves mm-hmm. and or their, you know, colleagues who are in similar situations. How important mm-hmm. is that? Mm-hmm. That's very important, and I don't think we could, we could advocate for any employee if they didn't reach out to us or they've tried and attempted. And in most cases, the first thing we do is ask for that employee or the individual uh, to see if they can try to negotiate or to try to have a conversation internally before we or any other outside uh, um, company even steps in. So that's our first step. We want employees to be empowered. We want them to be able to advocate for their own rights. And we're here to support them in any way possible, and if obviously if, if things are not going as 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 we want and as these as, you know these employees want, then then that's when we step in. But you know we already outreach to a lot of the companies just around the education piece, which is so critical to this work. You know, um, Minnesota has changed dramatically, especially in the Twin Cities. You know, mm-hmm. it's one of the whitest states in the union, ninety-seven percent white in the nineties, and we're starting to see a dramatic change of. Uh, more diverse uh, employees, which the state really needs as we have an aging population right. uh, that is not getting replenished. So, you know, these companies uh, a lot of times hire middle management that do not have experience or have ever yeah. worked with uh, a diverse staff. And in most cases, they don't know how to work these things out or they don't understand right. where the law uh, also lies. So education is a big comp- yep. piece. And what we've seen is if you yep. do the right thing, everybody wins. Jelani, thank you so much for finding time for us. Jelani Hussein, Executive Director of the Minnesota, Minnesota Council on American Islamic Relations Care, joining us on the phone from Minneapolis. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Carol Schleif. She is Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Abbott Downing. It's a division of Wells Fargo Asset Management based in Minneapolis in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome. me. It was kind of fun talking to you in the break because there's just <laughs> so much going on. Um, I was reading through your research note, and I thought it was interesting. You say the bull market, not very old. How old do you say it is and why? I'd peg it back to the summer of 2016, So actually. we're only two years old? That's what it feels like legitimately. Really? Yeah. Not 2000. 2009? Well, I mean, markets started to pick up then. But you think back to all of what we've dealt with back then. You had, even in 2011, we thought the EU was going to come apart at the seams. There was flat markets in there. There were really volatile markets in there. And we did have some big moves down. We did have big moves down. And we had big moves up, too. But it really, realistically, for many people, it was a staving off of the next Great Depression. And it did not at all feel like like rally markets. So is it a case of, wait... A couple of years ago, we started to be more normal in terms of a market cycle, and that's why you're I, also I thinking think it back, economic, it back to that. Yeah, I think point. economically, we were really able to um, 
get to the point where the economy had recovered. It takes an awful long time to right financial wrongs. And you had cleaner balance sheets. The banks were in good shape. Consumers were in good shape. Things were starting to tick up. Confidence came along, and then we started building inventories and, and building some plants and equipment. And So when people say, oh, my God, we're long in this market cycle, you're like, no, no, we're really not. We're really not. So how much – so, okay, so you're saying that we could kind of have a similar market feel for many years to come? Hopefully. You've got a, you've got a nice balancing act going on where there's things – pushing inflation down. There's things pushing inflation up. But we've got a more normalized level of inflation, which you look back over the post-World War II level, and it should be around 3 3.5%. And so getting back to that and getting management's used to being able to pass a little bit of a price increase on and do some hiring and do some attractive expansion is is really impactful. But you do have deflationary impacts going. So there's not anything in here that's going to stomp the gas pedal or stomp the brake, it seems like. Why aren't wages going up more? Why aren't we going up more? Wages. Oh. Especially if we're in this, we hear these stories about people who can't find workers. Right. Well, part of it is the skills mismatch. Part of it is you've got aging baby boomers at the high end of the scale moving out, and you've got younger Millennials moving in. In certain areas, there are definitely wage pressures. Take transportation costs, for example. But I think where this pushes out is it's forcing companies to accelerate a lot of their technology purchases. You look at the um, people-less kiosks to check out of Target, to check out of the airport vending machine, to check your bag at the airport now. I found out this morning is now a personless Excuse me, ma'am, but I'm not taking your (laughs) hair. You take the ticket and put it on your bag and just drop it. Um, So in this environment, then, if you think the bull market is just a couple of years old, starting in 2016, where do you want to be as an investor? I think we continue to lean into the growth trade. We're diversified. We're globally diversified across four different asset classes. We are cautionary in terms of the day-to-day volatility is higher because valuations are higher. Do you still want to be in the U.S.? You want U.S. exposure? Yes, we want U.S. exposure, but we want global exposure as well. But um, small caps, mid caps, there's there's interesting places that remain in the U.S., and the U.S. does remain a strong growth play. Um you, is there something, though, beyond the U.S. that you like more? I know you're global. I know you're diversified. But I'm just curious, have have you tweaked in terms of any of your asset allocation a little bit to reflect maybe a more favorable environment somewhere versus elsewhere? Well, we've been um, we've been overweight global equity, so our developed markets are full. We're watching emerging markets carefully. You've got a lot of capital flows that are pretty volatile going in and out of emerging markets. Is that opportunity to you, or does that mean be careful? Some of both. It depends. It's regionalized, but um, especially in the emerging markets, we've recently, as as a Wells Fargo firm, gone to more neutral on the emerging market debt in particular from an underweight. So just watching uh, the flows there. But obviously the one thing we're keeping a real close eye on is tariffs and what goes on there and could that throw things off. So what do you do? When do you know to kind of pull the plug that you think, okay, this is getting a little bit more you know, extreme? Um, we were talking earlier about China-U.S. specifically and, and what they've done so far in terms of the impact on either Chinese GDP or U.S. GDP. It's minuscule. But 
Right. These things can escalate and escalate pretty quickly. So what to you says, wait a minute, folks, we're, we definitely are in a much more protectionist environment. Or maybe we're there already. I don't know. I, I think the piece of it is, is nobody really knows what the knock-on impacts are because global supply chains have become so integrated. But it's important to keep in mind, too, that when you look through at who's doing the CapEx spending and where is it, where where is the R&D happening, a lot of it's technology and technology companies. So you don't necessarily have the physical plant and the physical things that cross borders that, that need right. to get tariffed or taxed that way. And so we're trying to protect that in the long run. So it's it's just it's worthy of watching and i think one of the places we watch is shipping we'll watch the what's going on at the ports we'll watch the baltic dry index we'll watch a business optimism and confidence because it really has been a shift in confidence that's driven this market right starting in 2016 and accelerating after the election well, nice to have you back here. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Good to see you. Be well. Take care. Carol Schleif, she's Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Abbott Downing. They are a division of Wells Fargo Asset Management. She's typically based in Minneapolis in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Monday. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 